Hey, TMC followers, if you like who we are and what we do on this podcast, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. It just helps us get the word out to more people. Enjoy the podcast. You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program dedicated to helping you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here are your hosts, Ezra Beyer and David Hartkopf. Well, hey there, welcome to another Monday Christian Podcast episode. Been off for a couple of weeks. Shanann and I have been traveling the country out here in California, but back in Idaho again. And Dave, here we are. Another week, another podcast. I have to ask you, Ez, uh, I know you kind of were on a little bit of a celebratory journey there, but how does it feel to be lauded as the right Reverend Dr. Ezra Beyer these days. Do you feel smarter? Oh, right. Yes. You, yes have yes. you wallpapered your office yet with copies of your, of your, uh, yeah, yeah this, just... this is about as good as it gets right here. So. <laughs> Janan covered it up with the mustard yellow curtains. She was like, that's enough of that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, man. exactly. Um, but no, we had a good time. We went, uh, went out to the West Coast, traveled along, uh, this area called Big Sur, Saul, and then, uh, Yosemite. National Park, and then the largest tree in the world, uh, General Sherman Tree. We did, I think, like 2,500 miles in a week with a four, two, and a zero-year-old. So it wow. was it was a trip. Not necessarily a vacation, but it was a trip. So, <laughs> Can anyway. I ask you a serious question about education? Yes. Can you tell me how your educational journey over the past several years has formed you, maybe? And also, I've heard a lot of folks that have gone through the type of process that I'm involved in, and you've just finished say, hey, watch out if, you're, if your capacity for love is not growing at the same rate as the things mm. you're learning, you're going to end up um, in really big trouble. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, can you talk, maybe just address that real quick? I don't know. It's just something I wanted to ask you. Well, it's a funny thing. We've talked about this because I'm kind of, when it comes to education, right, I, I love it. But then on the same hand, I'm kind of like, you know, I probably downplayed a little bit too much. But, uh, you know, yeah, it's it's... I mean, it's been an interesting journey. I, I think, like, in some ways. So the it's it's in intercultural studies. That's the focus of it. Um, and basically, w- one of the reasons I'm excited to have Daniel Yang on the podcast in, in just a couple seconds, he was in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where I lived for five years. And the focus of my dissertation was evaluating multi-ethnic church planning in Toronto uh, for um, for over the past ten years. And actually, one of the churches I. I pastors that I interviewed was where Daniel worked. And so, um, basically <laughs> the gist of the, my, my dissertation was I moved up to Toronto, didn't work out. Like I, I wish the church I had planted had succeeded. Right. But there was some different things that I carried as a, an American and my bias and all that, that made it a little bit tough for it to gain traction. And so it was kind of humbling, but then at the end of that, I, I said, well, I want to learn from people that are doing it well. And so went back, interviewed about 30, uh, 35 church planners in Toronto, all different levels, sizes, you know, dynamics. And, um, and from that research developed a lot of things. And I guess for me, education is a humbling process, right? It challenges us. And for me, it's been a humbling journey, but also super, super, uh, fruitful as well. So anyways, I don't want to keep Daniel waiting, but, um, real quick, um, Daniel Yang, he's the director of the Send Institute 
and uh, leading and overseeing all initiatives. And we're going to get into a little bit of his background and all. And but he's written a new book that we're going to chat about today. And it kind of addresses. Uh, co- he's co-authored the book, but it kind of addresses some of the challenges that I think many people in the West and specifically in America are having today with the evangelical church. What do we do? How do we respond right to some of the uh, hypocrisy that we've seen over the last couple of years? And that's even led to some people losing their faith in Christ. And so, anyways, with all that said, Daniel Yang, welcome to the Monday Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for uh, having me. Really appreciate and honored to be on with you guys. Well, absolutely. It's been one of the things on my bucket list for a number of years to bring you on, and finally it worked out to uh, to do so. Um, real quickly, your backstory and... Describe, so you came to, Tr- or to, not to Toronto, but you came to um, Chicago area, right? When And that's where you were actually born, although conceived, I guess, uh, somewhere else. And so <laughs> I love that little book. in your you book. book. Yeah, yeah. Um, awesome. That backstory, describe that. Um, what did it look like to grow up in? Yeah. Yeah. So my parents, uh, without having to go through the whole entire uh, story of my life, my parents were refugees from Laos, and so the little bit that you were saying there, yeah, I was conceived in a refugee camp in Thailand, but I was born in the cornfields of Illinois, a little bit south here of Chicago, and uh, really that was my family's upbringing. We were immigrants, refugees. Uh, we're not Christians. My parent, my dad, is the first Christian in the lineage of our family, and uh, became a follower of Jesus through a Lutheran church uh, in Illinois here. And uh, we moved to uh, inner city Detroit when I was eight. And so, you know, refugee immigrant uh, and then moved to Detroit um, and landed in a zip code 48205, which was one of the deadliest um, zip codes of Detroit on the east side there. And really all my grade school years, high school years um, was there and then went to college at the University of Michigan, was an engineer for about uh, nine years. Blue. Uh, whoa, whoa, did I Dan- mention? Hey, go, first of all, go blue, Daniel Yang. Yeah, go blue. Dude, I, I grew go. up in Berkeley. I grew up in Berkeley, yeah. Michigan. So I know what ah. zip code you're talking about. Where, where did you go to school, okay. actually? Sorry to side, side University of Michigan. Where, no, where did you go to like high school? Where did you go oh, to high school? school? Okay, so that was in the, uh, in, in the city, uh, Osborne High School, Seven oh, Mile wow. Gratiot. So, yeah, on the east side. awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So, um, so spent most of my life uh, in Detroit, uh, and then uh, went through a series of struggles. Uh, apart, you know, in a sense, my own deconstruction story in my mid twenties, and uh, came out on the other side of it, saying that if I'm going to be a Christian, I need to know the Bible. And so, um, I was an engineer at the time, and honestly, if I knew better, I would not have gone to seminary. But I decided to pay my way through seminary just to learn the Bible. Uh, later realized there were cheaper options, but you know that's what I did. But when I was coming out of seminary, I put together two things: number one, my immigrant story, and then number two, my own struggle with deconstructing, you know, um, uh, what I grew up with, the church that I grew up uh, in, and thought that there's probably a lot of other people similar to me. So went on this journey, you know, as where you mentioned multi-ethnic. Um, I went on this journey of what would it look like to plant a church that would reach. Um, second, third generation immigrants that were either, um, you know, post-Christian or pre, you know, or had never been exposed to the gospel. And so that was really my journey into uh, vocational ministry. Uh, I never thought about myself uh, as a pastor as much as I did a missionary. 
So that journey took me down to Texas where I was on staff at a church and was being prepared to do uh, church planting, but also multi-faith engagement on a global um, on a global scale. And was uh, with my mentor, Bob Roberts, for three years. And, and then he sent me up to Toronto where I planted a church uh, with a guy named Mike Seaman. Yeah, um, Mike which is just like Seaman. Texas. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a, a very unnatural <laughs> transition, actually, from... <laughs> From Fort Worth, Texas to uh, to downtown Toronto, and uh, but I learned a lot about what it meant to be an American Christian when I was no longer in an American context. Even though it was just in Toronto, which is closer to Detroit, the city that I grew up in, uh, you know, it's four hours away to where I am now outside of Chicago, but a completely different context. And I learned so much. We talk about that in the book about how much Americanness I carried into my own Christianity. So. And it was there for five years. Like what what was one key thing that maybe stood out to you in the early years of moving to Toronto? Yeah. yeah, You know, so I think uh, even speaking with a lot of the um, uh, the Canadian Christians, I I realized that like a lot of the um, the rhetoric that we develop in the church in America is very intrinsic to uh, the the like even the term multi-ethnic. Mm-hmm. multiracial churches not that that doesn't translate into a canadian context but the fact that we wave that flag here in america um uh was much more of an american thing and so when we were saying uh in downtown toronto that we were planting a multi-ethnic church and i'm interested in hearing your research around this ezra um that was kind of like it was almost like um we were we were stating the obvious like why wouldn't you, you if know? you're not building a multi-ethnic church what are you doing Basically. That's right. That's yeah. right. Whereas in America, you kind of champion that because at least for the last 20 years, it was somewhat of a novelty. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, just a lot of things like that, that I think were important. And then honestly, my ability to go in and out, meaning like, you know, and this is kind of a missionary uh, dilemma is, you know, if I choose to leave Canada, I had a, I had a home, I had a home to go to. Uh, I come back to the states. Although, I, mind you, I was I was in Canada the years 2012 to 2017, and the America that I left and came back to was very different. Um, yeah. But I can go back and forth across the border. Uh, like that was what I can choose. You know, I, I had a passport that allowed me to be an American, and so that I lived from that identity in Canada. And not that that was a bad thing, but again, that was just another layer that I saw when I was in Canada, that my Americanness was deeply a part of my social identity and therefore also a part of my Christian identity. Yeah, that's that's very fascinating. I've Your work with Mike Siemens, then, what did that look like? What, what you know, because I'm just kind of curious with my research, but so I don't want to hijack the conversation here, but what did those early days of church planning look like? Um for you up there well you know yeah. pounding you know, the yeah, pavement. Well, what did that look like yeah it definitely pounding the pavement yeah mike uh and missy seaman they're still pastoring the church training life church there in downtown toronto uh they were up from raleigh north carolina now uh, uh mike was a military kid so he was you know he grew up all over and was always you know uprooting and so he had that uh kind of transitional mindset and so moving into toronto where there is a lot of transients i think in from that regard, uh, it was easier for him. Um, you know, for me, I, I kind of grew up in Detroit 20 years and that was home for me. But I think the both of us, we had to learn how intrinsic. Yeah, and we both went to Southern Baptist seminaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we both uh, we, we were coming from Southern Baptist churches at that point. 
you know, so when you go to Canada and you're, you're two American couples and you're planting, you know, a Southern Baptist church, it was, it was actually a Canadian national Baptist church, but it's ties are Southern Baptist. Like those are a lot of layers to undo. And that's a lot of baggage that you bring into conversations when you say, Hey, we're Americans, one from the South, we're planting Southern Baptist churches and we're here to reach you. And, uh, you know, you can imagine how some of those conversations went in, in urban downtown Toronto. Oh, I know every, it felt like every conversation I always had with people, you always had to preface it with, well, now I was born in Montreal and I was raised in Northern Ontario. Oh yes. I lived half my life in the United States. Right. And, but I, I'm, I'm guessing though, those years in Toronto though, that how much did that shape the writing that you did in this book and alienable? how marginalized kingdom voices can help uh, save the American church right there. There it is yeah. um, coming out in May, I believe uh, 2022. Um, yeah. How did that shape you in the writing? Well, it was huge, you know, and this is a co-authored uh, book with mm-hmm. uh, Eric Costanzo, who's a pastor of a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then Matt Sorens, who uh, works uh, as a church, a church mobilizer, national church mobilizer for world relief. His main work is in advocacy advocacy. So, you know, I'm a missiologist. Eric's a, um, a local church pastor, and then Matt's in uh, in advocacy. And for me, writing from a missiologist uh, perspective, uh, you know, my time those five years in Toronto largely shaped me. Uh, and I, the, when I say shaped me, it gave me. It, it was almost as if like I was able to step outside of the United States physically, but also also. You know, um, I was able to step outside of my American social identity um, mm. and to really look at both, you know, the country that I was born and then raised in, but also the identity that I'd taken on. Like, it really does take leaving, um, you know, physically and emotionally to really understand that those are social identities that you carry with you. And yes. so Toronto really did that. And mind you, during my time in Toronto, that was when uh, Trump came into office. And so which was very jarring for uh, a lot of folks. You know, I, I don't want to assume I know all your your listeners, but, you know, for some folks, that was a really jarring thing for evangelicals on both sides. Mm-hmm. And so having to process that across the border and then eventually to move back in 2017, 18, um, I really did feel like I was coming back to a different America. Number one, because the climate in America had changed, but number two, I had changed quite a bit because of my time in Toronto. A different America or a different American church? I think both. And um, that's a little bit of part of the premise of our book, Inalienable. You know, we pur- purposely chose that title because the word inalienable or unalienable, uh, inalienable is kind of more the modern rendering, is a part of the Declaration of Independence. And um, so, you know, there has been a conflation, I think, of American Christianity with uh, our American social identity. And, you know, for the most part, every person who is a follower of Jesus, you have a social location. So you can't divorce who you are as a social person, your nationality, your ethnicity, uh, with your Christian identity. But, um, you know, when I say that uh, home had changed, uh, both. So the politics of America had changed quite a bit, or at least I would say the polarization became much more defined and the environment was much more supercharged and that wasn't just something that was happening outside the church as a matter of fact Mm -hmm. probably we saw it more um, prominently in certain streams of evangelicalism where that divide or that polarization was much more pronounced now 
because of the political environment. And so that, you know, in some ways had confirmed what a lot of folks had been feeling already about the conflation of, uh, you know, na nationalism uh, in America and the Christian faith, which again, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's an observation. It's not a truth about everybody and, and every stream, but largely I think um, the premise of our book is that um, it takes, it takes other voices for us to really see that there is a deep conflation of uh, American nationalism uh, with our faith. Dave, what would you say as you hear this? Because I've heard this from multiple people, right? It was 2016 and afterwards. It wasn't just so much that Donald Trump was president, although that was shocking, but it was the response of Christian leaders and that just opened the eyes of so many people to how much um, Christianity in America was tied to politics. Any thoughts yeah, you, you well, have on that? Well, I think that just the the whole growth of how we interact so uh, inter interacting a lot on social media like there are so many things that exacerbated the polarity i think but it's de it was definitely more evident and it it seemed to push people to very absolute sort of reductionistic positions it's very hard to be a nuanced person in this culture and so i think you you, you saw maybe some leaders take positions that in retrospect they regret. I, I don't know. I don't want to speak for them. Um, but actually, Daniel, I have a question for you. you. You mentioned a deconstruction journey, and Ezra and I have been chatting uh, uh, online, actually, with several folks about how, how did, how did your, your journey, um, was it mostly personal? Was it involved in a corporate sense? And how did that influence some of the writing that you've done? What, were any of that, was there any connection between some of those things? I'm just curious. Yeah, you know, I don't bring uh, any of my personal story into it, but just to give your listeners an idea, when I was 24, uh, at that point, I had already been an engineer for a couple of years, was married, had three kids. I got married young, uh, grew up essentially in the church, uh, even though my dad became a believer when I was, um, you know, younger, uh, you know, my whole entire uh, teenage and uh, adult life had been in the church. Um, and, w and I went to the University of Michigan um, and was involved in campus ministry um, and um, really hung on to, you know, some of the uh, apologetics that you would see on university campuses, you know, Veritas forums and the different ways that crew would bring in, you know, the debates between, you know, let's say a Christopher Hitchens and William Lane Craig or something like that. I think, you know, probably during that season of my life, which would have been the mid to late 90s, um, I, I think a lot of my faith was kind of informed by rational apologetics. And then by the time I left uh, university, graduated uh, and started to live like real life, not that university life wasn't real life, but it was, in, you know, in a sense, a bubble. It was a, and that rational Christianity was like a version of it. It wasn't the entirety of my life, but it was a big part of my life. And, uh, and I realized that like some of the answers to the questions that I had been asking, like there just aren't, at least at that stage of my life, there just weren't any real rational answers for hmm. there'd been attempts to ask, you know, um, later on, I became very involved in multi-faith conversations, which is how do you engage your religious neighbor? Um, and how do you really see them for who they are? Uh, yeah, we get into some of this in the book, but really, um, identify, you know, the image of God. What does it mean that's intrinsic to every human being? 
But those things were, I don't think, largely celebrated, uh, at least in the circles that I was in. And so we were much more, uh, I was much more accustomed to seeing others as somebody to reach because of evangelism and apologetics or an enemy to make. And so I think that carried over into my personal life. You know, this is the you know, Monday morning, uh, Monday Christian podcast. Like my Mondays were really, you know, passionate about reaching my engineering uh, coworkers or refuting the the arguments that they had against my rational belief for Christianity. And so I was either either people that I was trying to reach or they were, you know, enemies that I was trying to debate. And at some point I just I was I became jaded and disappointed with my own faith and with our approach to people in general, especially those who didn't know yet yet know Jesus. Hmm. And so it was about a it was about a you know two year journey. I was 26 coming out of it uh, where I, there was a point where I walked into my pastor's office and I said to him, uh, hey, I don't think I have faith anymore. Um, I was leading worship at the church at the time, uh, just just a, a lay worship leader. And uh, he was really in need of a really problematic, I guess. Yeah, yeah, well, that was my point that I was making. <laughs> now, spoken as a true pastor, he was in need of a good worship leader. So he said, you know, hey, we'll work through this. Just keep leading worship and you'll get through it. And uh, he was right. But, you know, it wouldn't have been my advice. Um, but I uh, came out of that season about two, 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 two and a half years as a matter of fact, it was an email that I sent to Savoni at the time. So I was about 26, uh, 26 and a half or, or some. And I was researching like, you know, all the, again, I went, I fell back on my rational apologetics and was researching. It was, it was 2004 leading up to Easter. And I was researching the resurrection or, or something like that. I think it was the New Testament. And I ran across uh, N.T. Wright's work. Um, and uh, I, I had no clue N.T. Wright was. I think at the time, like, no kidding, maybe the most theological book I had read at that point was something by Max Lucado. And I don't say that in a condescending way. That was just the truth about you know, yeah. my approach. Now, I had been listening to <clears throat> RZIM and, right. you know, I mean, William Lane Craig. But in terms of my own study, like my own like uh, personal attempt to understand the arguments. Um, so I was reading N.T. Wright. <clears throat> And uh, I decided to email him. He was the Bishop of Durham at the time, 2004. And um, I just, I sent him a long email. I still have in my, I, I sent him my email from uh, my UMich, University of Michigan account. So I still have it. And I said, I got all these questions. And he responds back to me the week leading up to Easter. And he says, you have too many questions for me to answer in this email. But you have to ask yourself, either the resurrection happened and it must mean something or it didn't happen and you can be on your way. Like a very British response, right? Um, and <laughs> although he did, he, he just he like exactly. dropped the mic on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. And although he, he didn't answer any of my questions, like he gave me like a, a way forward to think. And it wasn't so much, again, the rational plausibility for why the resurrection was real, even though he wrote a, you know, 900 page book about it. Uh, but it was like, there is something that should re-enchant you about the world if the resurrection is real you know and um i think that was the that was the moment where it began to turn for me that i think where what what felt like cynicism for about two and a half years began to feel like hope again and again it was less about like this rational understanding about our faith and it was more about like being re-enchanted by this story about who jesus is who well, he was it, and what he did and if he had come at it i'm just thinking about that right from a more rational perspective and gave you a list of reasons, I'm guessing your response might've been very different. Like I'm, as I'm hearing you explain, I, I think for myself, 
there's so many points I feel like I'm connecting with with the way that you share this because sometimes when I hear people that are very just like, well, it's obvious, it's this, it's this and this, I think some people need that. Um, but for me, that does not connect as much. Um, I, and so when you, I hear you, you know, share an NT rights response, right. And it's very much, you know, not the typical advice you would maybe hear from a Western American that would immediately appeal to me because then it's saying, Oh, you need to go search and go deeper. And I'm not just going to give you a list of cookie cutter answers. Yeah, yeah, and maybe the connection point with a, a lot of what we are were addressing in the book um, was that I think there's there's this subtle prescription that American Christianity offers to society, including those who struggle with faith. Uh, you know, I would say you know it was, uh, not the whole entire book, but a portion of our book has to do with those who have been jaded by you know um, the responses of American Christian leaders and yeah especially over this past decade or so. And um, a part of it is because uh, when things are working well, those prescriptions, you know, do do tend to make sense and they do tend to create a certain kind of like Christian culture. Um, but when you forget that, like, it's not as simple as those cookie cutter things and that prescription can become at some point almost oppressive. And then when the leaders don't live from integrity then that prescription it just seems like the whole world that they built or the whole world that you chose to live in is crumbling and so in 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 some ways it's hard to diagnose that too like if you are a person if you struggle and if you're you know some one of your listeners if they've struggled with the church in in america it's hard for you to find some semblance of hope because that's for me at least that was all i knew that's all i grew up in and you need external voices and mm. more more ancient forms of the church to remind you that we are in just this like we're in just one time epic of the church and that the church is actually much bigger than the moment that we're in right now yeah so can i it's, ask a follow-up to that as um so when i read that you mentioned uh in your writing we need deeper roots within the early church and um you're speaking that's Dave's love of, language there. I know that's mm. like that unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, or fortunately, that's kind of what there. I've been doing a lot of over the last couple mm -hmm. of years, and because uh, I've been forced to, but it's been a good journey too. Uh, so my my question for you is, what does the early church have to teach us about that? And do you think, in like this, since the Enlightenment, this obsession with truth, which I think we need truth. I think we need 900 page books about the plausibility of the resurrection. But the, the realization that this truth is also beautiful and it's good and there's an experiential, I, I don't know, was it, was it Jen Pollock, uh, as that, that said, you know, I would tell somebody who's struggling with faith, just come experience the be beauty of liturgy over the space of six months rather than handing them a book of syllogism. I don't know. There's a, there's a beauty component here that maybe plays in a little bit, but specifically deeper roots within the early church. What does that look like? What are we missing by not studying pre-Reformation church history? Yeah, this is um, such an important part of the book. Uh, as a matter of fact, Eric Costanzo, he did his PhD in, in um, uh, some ancient church fathers, and so he really writes to, um, to this point. Uh, you know, there's so much about um, the, the history of the church that I think if you don't take time to appreciate the, the, the 
longevity in the uh, various forms of the church from house churches to, you know, even, you know, even kind of uh, Christendom, then you, uh, you fail to realize that like what we're experiencing right now isn't um, so unique to our time period. And so when we go back to, you know, if we, if you go back to the New Testament, you know, just kind of biblical theology and, and, and uh, biblical history. You understand that when the uh, when the early apostles heard Jesus give the Great Commission, um, it would have sounded very different than the way that we hear the Great Commission today. Um, for some people, not not everybody, but for some people, when they hear the Great Commission in their minds, because of the modern devices and techniques and rhetorical you know mobilization rhetoric that we use for missions, they hear things like you know reaching the 1040 window um you know they hear things like um uh y- you know uh christianizing you know kind of pagan nations uh, you know or some version of that and um what it does is if we only see missions in church history through our current lens then we have this we have this like disproportionate understanding of like church influence and because a lot of the language that we use today was kind of birthed, you know, in the rise of denominations and then probably also coming out of the modern missionary movement, you know, all very kind of post-Reformation, um, where the West is either coming into, you know, prominent influence or in some ways America is coming into a prominent influence. And um, but if you examine like the actual christian population on the planet right now like it's a disproportionate uh influence right now in america but that influence in terms of numbers of christians i mean that's actually greater outside of north america and increasingly outside of the west um and um but at one time you know uh even though i would say you know the west is is a little bit of a a mixing of you know greek and hellenistic and uh judeo-christian thought uh, you see that the church, um, you know, lasted for a long time prior to uh, the Reformation in a way that was uh, mystical, in a way that was, um, you know, sometimes liturgical, sometimes monastic, uh, sometimes very grassroots, you know, uh, uh, house church movements. You see that early on. Rodney Starks kind of charts a little bit of that in his book, uh, Rise of Christianity. And you forget that like the church was really, really perseverant and persistent. And then you also forget that it was also very corrupt. Like we we're not in a super unique time where we're seeing a corrupt version of cultural Christianity. That's always been the case. But if you fail to realize that there's ancient history that the church has always persevered, it can feel crushing during this particular instance of it. Hmm. One of the points you, you you make. Oh, Dave, do you, you have a no. Okay. Go ahead, bro. You say uh, American Christians have far too often made the mistake of viewing Christians from other parts of the world as our little brothers and sisters, uh, as if they were less equipped by the Holy Spirit because they have fewer resources and smaller theological libraries. On the contrary, we believe the global church to be among God's greatest and timeliest gifts to the American church, particularly in this season. With my doctoral research as well, one of the, the points that was interesting to me is the difference between diversity and belonging, right? Diversity, hey, we need someone on our staff who's a different skin color so we can reach more people. That's important. That's diversity. 
belonging is very different. Could you talk about the distinction between those two terms and how we can create better senses of belonging in churches? Yeah, that's huge. And that's definitely a big part of um, what we think it takes to really have more uh, global and local congregations um, that kind of transcend just this, uh, you know, intensely American version of a church or an American version of Christianity. Belonging is 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 very important to um, uh, this. I think this new season for churches and Christian leaders that are trying to craft congregations that are pliable, meaning that like they can ebb and flow with with the fast changing culture. You know, and we saw in the pandemic. You know, uh, probably the pandemic fast tracked some so many cultural issues. Things that would have taken probably 10, maybe 15 years to really resolve. And you see that you know, just if you think about case in point, like the language around gender, that 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 iterated very fast in the last two or three years in the pandemic, I think, had something to do with that. Um, and so, you know, how do you become more agile and pliable? Uh, a part a big part of that is diversity needs to be meaningful in order for it to actually uh, mean something. If it's not meaningful, then it ends up actually creating potential, you know, spiritual, uh, emotional trauma for those who have been, in a sense, tokenized for the sake of, 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 of just kind of like um, a token diversity. But meaningful belonging um, has a lot to do with those who belong or are a part of something, and they can bring their heritage, they can bring their um, their intellectual traditions uh, into not just a conversation, but into the cultural formation of a congregation. So case in point, you know, if I'm, I'm, I'm ethnically, I'm, I'm Hmong, even though national, uh, nationality wise, I'm American. Um, but Hmong people, we have a very um, particular way of understanding the, the world. Some may say it's pagan because it's uh, animistic, meaning that uh, Hmong people tend to see everything as animated. Um, the trees are animated. When I say animated, like there's a spiritual energy behind it. And so um, in American Christianity, uh, if I were to say that in most circles, they would understand what I'm saying as almost a pagan worldview or almost yeah. a pantheistic worldview, right? Yep. Um, but if you understand what where the Hmong worldview is coming from, it it's it's not... It's, it's less of a pagan understanding and a pantheistic understanding of the of the world. It, it's not too divergent from actually the way that the, the Bible talks about all of creation. And uh, there's something intrinsic uh, to how Hmong people understand the world that actually understands a spiritual reality that's less, um, you know, platonized um, and it's much more integrated. And so if I'm coming to a congregation, there's something about how I understand the world that should be both, you know, validated, but also challenged. You know, I think it comes from both sides. And then you have to ask the question, you know, based on that, you know, um, especially if you have a large constituency, I'm giving you, you know, a case study or an example now, especially if you, if you have a large constituency among people, how does their worldview actually begin to shape the culture and the discipleship processes uh, in our church? And unless you're willing to at least entertain those questions, then any level of diversity you have is probably just veneer. 
you know, at best, and then potentially it's tokenizing and, uh, you know, traumatic, you know, in the long run. And so I think those are really important things. Again, you, you, you can you can kind of put aside my example, but what I was trying to illustrate there is that when you have a longstanding culture, and if you don't allow an outside culture to come in and influence and challenge the way that you think about the world, that potentially what you end up doing is you start uh, integrating your own culture into Christianity and your culture becomes, uh, you know, conflated with Christianity. And so I think it's important for us to really seek meaningful belonging because that is the mechanism that actually keeps you from uh, uh, allowing stale culture to permeate uh, the way that you think about um, uh, Christianity. Well, and you notice this when you go to other cultures, because for instance, when I, another American Americans would uh, maybe visit Canada or see Canada on the news. They a lot of times have very, you know, they would maybe think of it as very liberal and they would say, well, why don't pastors speak out more on abortion, uh, gay marriage and all these social topics? Whereas then my Canadian friends, right. They would say, well, why are you so nationalistic? Why, why are you so, why is everything, uh, you know, you in the U S why, why is it so tied to politics? Um, it's like you're in bed with the government, right. And, and all these, all these things. And it's almost like you said earlier, take stepping away a little bit to get some perspective on these things. And then when you can't step away, you have to allow others to step into your spaces, you know, and again, that's, yeah. it goes back to your question about what is meaningful belonging mm. really mean? Cause when you allow others, you know, and, it is, and, and this is not a, a, you know, a black, white, you know, it, it, if, right. if you're a majority culture in whatever context you're in, you don't allow somebody to meaningfully belong to what you are a part of, then you actually, um, you actually are refusing, you know, the mechanism that actually helps to keep you pliable and agile and to change uh, that's, that's necessary. I think as uh, this is reminding me of our conversation with Lamar Hardwick, when he told us like, Hey, this is more about sharing a space. It has to be these voices help shape the space, right? Like it, if, if we're not humble enough to admit that, you know, like we have need each of each other in the body and we don't just need a, a token person for a, a photo op, but we really need your perspective to help us like accomplish the mission of the church in this space, in this time period, in this culture. I just, I just think we're poor for it. I, I maybe, maybe a question for you, uh, Daniel, like who do you, who do we look to that's doing this well? Because I guess uh, I am a little, weary of seeing bad examples and cautionary tales i just who who do who do the folks that tune into the monday christian the tens and tens of them that tune in who do who do we look to for like guidance on this and and saying like hey man this community is really doing this well um or this is this is someone you can follow as they follow christ yeah yeah that's a good question what i'm i mean there's probably a few church uh, leaders that I can point out that would be helpful. And, um, you know, they're, they're friends that we work with um, that, you know, are, are leaders um, in leading churches. But I, I like to highlight a couple of voices from the book um, that uh, we really wrestled with and struggled with and made sure that we really understood what their voice and their message was um, to impact us as, you know, writers of the book. You know, Eric is Eric and Matt are both um, uh, white men, 
uh, and me being Hmong or, or, or Asian. And uh, we were all very interested in learning from um, other Americans, but also global Christians. And um, one of the voices that were, was really deeply impactful for us was uh, Robert Chow Romero, who teaches, uh, he's a professor of history at uh, UCLA. He's, a, he's an evangelical Christian. And um, his book, The Brown Church, um, I think it kind of made splash, uh, maybe about two years ago when it first came out, made splashes. Um, but there's still so many implications from his book for local churches to really understand. And the reason why I'm pointing this out is because, you know, the fastest growing demographic in uh, evangelical denominations are Hispanics. And um, if you look at uh, the growth of evangelicalism in the United States, uh, one of the very few growing denominations that continue to grow every year is the Assemblies of God. Uh, they've been growing year after year for the last 30 years, and um, primarily because of the Hispanic church or the Latino American churches. And what Dr. Robert Child Romero points out in his book is that there, there has been a 500-year history of the what he would call the brown church and a brown theology that has always had an integrated pro approach of both gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, gospel of salvation, personal conversion, and also social change. That's always been, you know, the uh, the mo of the Brown Church. Um, it's never been afforded any other posture other than to expect both personal renewal and then also societal change. And he says that, and by and large, uh, because a lot of the local churches flow through not institutional top-down, and again, I'm not saying that Hispanic churches are perfect, and so that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that because of this ethos of being about personal conversion and also social change, and then the structure tends to be uh, family structures and not so much hierarchical top-down structures, although you might see that in the Catholic Church and other Protestant movements. That, that actually creates a different ethos. And um, I think in some ways, that's part of the reason why a lot of our denominations that are seeing some revitalization, that uh, you know the Hispanic church has been a part of the revitalization because of number one, the centuries of traditions that they bring to the church here in America. And number two, they're by and large growing because they're family networks and they're not just um, you know professional networks or institutional networks. And I think that's really important. So to go back and answer your question, like without pointing to a particular church, I think it's important for us to learn from the Hispanic church, the Latino American church. I think that's a huge gift. Um, again, what makes it very complicated um, is that there has been a certain part of evangelical Christians that have been taught to think a certain way about our brothers and sisters to the south of the border. And I think that gets in the way uh, of sometimes, you know, us thinking about uh, brown Christians or Latino American Christians. But I think we need to really ask ourselves the question, like, what is God doing uh, amongst the brown church? And why is it growing here in the United States? And what does that mean for our local churches? But what does that mean for the church in America moving forward? Mm. And how do we learn from them, right? How do we learn yeah. from them? And how do, because clearly, yeah, like you're saying, how do we invite them to share share space as well? Um, but that that again is right humility. This is taking admitting like, hey, 
there's there's a group of people that are essentially networking in a way to connect it to earlier in a way similar I think that the early Christian communities I don't know that there was a ton of hierarchy uh, but there was a lot of like family connection is that is that a fair statement Daniel I think so I think you know in some ways if you study the uh, the New Testament church you know it had to grow outside of the traditional structures because obviously you know for a while it was thought of as a Jewish sect so it couldn't grow within uh, the uh, uh, Jewish system, and eventually, obviously, when the temple was destroyed in 70, everything else kind of went away anyways. And so at least for the first two or three, you know, centuries of the church, it was, you know, in a sense, a very viral movement because it was, by and large, through grassroots social networks. Uh, and I do think once you get to the fourth and fifth century, there was still some semblance of that. You know, Constantine did the political thing and he created, you know, an institution, uh, and, and maybe not just an institution, but a, um, a, you know, a, an empire around, uh, you know, religious rhetoric. Um, but I think by and large, yes, but that doesn't mean to me, it doesn't mean that institutions can't be valuable. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't absolutely, uh, continue to work towards renewing institutions. But I do think that, um, uh, institutions can be renewed not primarily by like hearkening back to their golden days or their heydays, but, you know, further than that, you know, which is both the historic church and then also the church outside of the American context, but then also kind of moving towards the future and saying, okay, what, where, where is like, where is the church, where is demographics going to be in, in the year 2040, 2050? And where is our institution at in terms of like meeting those demographic needs, you know? And then also, who are the thought leaders that are actually shaping some of the conversations that are happening now? And are those voices actually, you know, inst uh, instrumental to the change that we're seeing in our institution? And I, those are hard questions because for the most part, institutions have to answer to founders and to trustees that are very interested in preserving the heritage of that institution. But they're worthwhile, you know, questions to ask. You know, kind of to put a bow on this conversation, I think one of my friends, uh, Terrence Lester in Atlanta, what he mentions is just the importance of sitting at the table of other people, right? Not just inviting people to come sit at your table, but going and sitting at, at the tables of, of other people um, to better understand what they're saying, but then also the power dynamic, right? We have how many, there's how many uh, panel discussions, right? Maybe on racial diversity that are comprised of four white people and one token person, right? That's invited to the panel, but um, changing the power dynamic where there's actual belongings allowed to, to take place. And um, Daniel, just I'll close this out with this question uh, for people. Again, this podcast is for everyday Christians, uh, hopefully driving to and from work or commuting to and from work and, you know, listening to this on the way uh, to or back. Um, why is this book uh, helpful for them and not just for church leaders? Yeah, I appreciate that question uh, because we really did write this book to be accessible by, um, you know, your everyday Christian. What we're hoping that the book can do for you as you're reading through it is to help imagine like what is what is the reality of the church in America, and how that really trickles down to like the way that you treat your neighbor across the street. Um, you know, we live in a neighborhood where uh, we're resettling a lot of Afghan refugees right now. Um, so what, is, what does that mean? 
what is how does that affect the way that I become a neighbor to them? How I reflect Jesus to them? Because the the version of Jesus that they might be getting on social media and on news headlines and including you know documentaries on uh, you know um, on on their online subscriptions um, will challenge your life that you're actually trying to live in front of them. And so what we're hoping the book can do is to equip the everyday Christian to number one, realize that, you know, you're not alone in just being an American Christian, that you have a rich history of, um, of the church. You have sisters and brothers all around the world that are doing amazing things that us Americans are still just talking about in terms of environment, environmentalism, in terms of uh, justice, in terms of evangelism and planning churches, you know, the church in Iran, like th those are, are, are huge resources and gifts to the church in America to number one, have hope. And to number two, to, to help our neighbors around us who don't yet know Jesus understand that, uh, you know, there is a, uh, there is a church that is concerned about the flourishing of society and the flourishing of, you know, the community. And uh, it doesn't have to be what they see on their social media uh, uh, feed. And then uh, second, I, I think this, this is really kind of the basic thing that we're hoping to encourage people is to also think better about like who, who they are in their own social identities and to begin to understand where, where we live out of, a particular social identity, which it could be ethnicity, it could be gender, it could be race. And if those things are becoming idols in your life, that you have to be willing to let Jesus center himself um, and let those go to the periphery in order for him to redeem those things and so that they might be useful in the right way. And that's really uh, at the heart of our challenge is to allow those inalienable qualities of uh, God's word, the image of God, the mission of God, um, allow those things to shape us way beyond any one of our social identities. Wow. And I think a big thing, oftentimes we only change when we have to change. And I think for a lot of white churches today, that sadly might be the reality where if their communities aren't too diverse or they are diverse, but their communities, church community tends to be white, they don't change until all of a sudden they realize, oh, wow, we actually need to change to better reflect our communities or else we're going to become obsolete. And I guess my thought would be, let's not wait till that happens. Let's actually get ahead of this and learn from uh, different voices, marginalized voices, uh, as, as you share here. And I just, I feel like this can be so helpful, not only for church leaders, as you say, but for everyday Christians. And um, that's a, just, just a powerful word. Um, best places people can find you online? Yeah, yeah. In terms of uh, my work, uh, you can go to Wheaton uh, Billy Graham Center org, and you can find my work there. Uh, my socials are K O O B B as in boy X W M as in Mike K O B X W M. Twitter, Facebook. Uh, that's how you can find me there. All right, Daniel Yang. Thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. For more info on this program, simply visit our website, themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com. 